Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaberman, with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And my guest for this episode is Dr. Omar Maru, who's one of the world's foremost experts in electrophysiological testing for the retina. And just so our listeners know, electrophysiological testing of the retina is basically evaluating how retinas electrically respond to light. And that's really getting at the primary function of the retina. And I know many of you with an inherited retinal disease out there has had an electroretinogram, an ERG. And that's, I think, the most common electrophysiological test for the retina. And they aren't exactly the most beloved form of testing. So Omar, isn't that a great segue? I'm introducing you as the guy who administers a test that nobody likes. Uh, that's a great introduction and uh, thanks first I just want to say it's, it's an honor to be here I've, I've, I've seen the list of people you've had on podcast before and they really are world experts so sorry, sorry if it's going to go downhill uh, today but uh, well but we're going to try to make it go uphill as <laughs> as much as possible these tests are really important and I'm really excited to have you on the program so you can explain why they're important what they do and why they're important. And just quickly, where are you based? So I'm based at uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. It's the oldest and largest eye hospital in the UK. Uh, and I also do clinics at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, which is just across from the Houses of Parliament, where I'm sitting right now, uh, which also has a big eye department. Uh, and interestingly, was the place that a lens was first placed in the eye for cataract surgery. That's a claim to fame for St. Thomas's Hospital. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. And you are a consultant ophthalmologist and retinal specialist, and you're also a professor of retinal neuroscience at University College London. A little more on Omar. He completed his medical degree and PhD at the University of Cambridge. And during his undergraduate years, he achieved a triple first-class status. And I want to get to that in a moment. He was named Rising Star of the Year by the UK-based Macular Society. That was in 2019. And received awards for teaching excellence and for patient and public engagement from the University College London and the Moorfields Biomedical Research Center. That happened in 2020. He's co-authored over 130 publications, and he spends much of his time seeing patients mainly with inherited retinal diseases. He conducts research to better understand these diseases, and he teaches both locally and internationally. So back to this triple first class <laughs> status you received while you were pursuing your undergraduate degree, not just first class, not just double first class, but triple first class. Omar, it sounds like you get a really good seat on an airplane. Right. That's right. So uh, so the, the, the first few years of, of the Cambridge medical degree are kind of basic science years and, and you get a grade at, at the end of each year. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to get a first class each of those three years. So So people call it a triple first class if you get that. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining that. And I'm honored to have somebody with triple first class status <laughs> on the podcast. So let's start. Still travel by economy, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's start off with the basic definition of electrophysiology and what are some of the tests that fall under that umbrella? So exactly as you said, electrophysiology is, is um, deals with detecting the electrical signals from the retina or part of the brain, the, the visual cortex that deals with vision. And one of the main tests, as you said, is the ERG, the electroretinogram. So just with electrodes around the eye, we deliver flashes of light uh, or flickering light, and we record the response of the retina to that light. And it's amazing that uh, without having to take someone's eye out, just with some electrodes uh, around the eye, you can get the responses of the very uh, neurons in the eye to light and all of the processing that's happening in the retina. We have over 100 million photoreceptors that detect uh, light and they signal to other cells and then to one and a half million ganglion cells that connect to the brain. Uh, and there's a, a huge amount of processing that goes on so that the ganglion cells aren't just signaling light and dark, but all kinds of aspects of vision, like direction of movement and contrast. And so some of that can be captured with the electroretinogram, some of those responses, photoreceptors, bipolar cells. There's another test called the electrooculogram, not so useful as it used to be, but that's helpful in diagnosing best disease. And there's another type of recording visual evoked potentials, which are from electrodes that are stuck on the back of the head, right over the visual cortex, which is the main bit of the brain that deals with vision. And by putting these tests together, we can get an idea of if the retina and the visual pathway, the optic nerve and, and uh, the parts of the brain that deal with vision are working properly. Even though we now have really good imaging tests to look at the retina in cross-section uh, in our patients so that, um, you know, in the old days, we just look with a lens at the back of the eye. And nowadays, we still do that because we're ophthalmologists, right? The patient wouldn't believe they'd seen an eye doctor if we didn't try and look at the back of their eye with a lens. But uh, we get a lot more from the imaging. But still, electrophysiology is um, important because sometimes the imaging can look normal, but the retina is still not working properly. So the electroretinogram, say, if it's a retinal disease, will tell us whether the retina is working uh, well or not, and maybe even which parts of the retina, which layers aren't, aren't working properly. So it's, it's really an important diagnostic tool. So you can tell which cells in the retina are or aren't working properly. Is that correct? You, you kind of just said that. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So um, I meant that in the past, it was really important because we just had lenses to look in and, and sometimes the retina would look normal and the ERG would tell us it, it wasn't working properly. With imaging, maybe the need has evolved. So not everyone needs an ERG or not as many people as before, but still, uh, even with our amazing imaging, which looks very pretty, um, the retina may still not be working properly. I often say the retina is not just there to sit and look pretty on imaging, it's there to generate electrical signals and, and it's electrophysiology that allows us to quantitatively uh, you know, objectively monitor those signals and, and and help with the diagnosis. And we've had many patients where sometimes, you know, it's not clear what their genetic diagnosis is. You do the genetic testing and still uh, you kind of none the wiser, you get a whole load of genetic data back and you don't know what's uh, relevant and what isn't, or you get a negative test result and you don't know which genes really to look at in more detail. And in many of our patients, the electrophysiologies help guide us work out which gene or which type of variant in which genes are, are likely to be important in our patients. Right. And when somebody gets this test, you're putting the electrodes on their eye or around their eye? Yeah, there are different ways of doing it. Basically, something you need to have electrodes kind of either side of the eye, front and, and back. Obviously, how do you get it behind the eye? We just put it on the temple, so a skin electrode on the temple. And the one at the front of the eye 
there are there are sometimes contact lens electrodes or there can be a little thread we call it the dtl it's like a conductive fiber that just gets placed behind the lower eyelid and uh, and then we're measuring the voltage between those two electrodes and we normally put another ground electrode on the forehead if people find it difficult to have an ele electrode in the eye that little thread which, which is very comfortable i've had it in my eye for hours and hours but we can also just place a, an electrode on the skin on the lower eyelid rather other than having to put one in the eye. And uh, that gives you a lower amplitude response, but you can still tell quite a lot even from those recordings. Right. And my understanding is that before somebody gets an ERG, they're put in darkness for a while. Is that true? They're dark adapted, as, as you say? That's right. So one uh, thing about the, the retina is it, it, it can adapt amazingly to, you know, a, a billion fold change in light intensities. We don't notice it, but uh, we go out in different light environments and we don't really notice that we're adapting. It's only when you put an iPhone camera up and you realize, why can I see this part of the picture, not that part? And we realize that our kind of retinas are better than any iPhone camera. So but what that means is uh, it's very um, dependent that the, the size of the signals you record are really dependent on whether the patient's been in the light or in the dark. And it can vary a lot. It's not like, a uh, say, an OCT where if the patient's just been in the dark and the light, it's not very different. But the size of the signals we record can change a lot. So for that reason, tests are standardized and patients are put in the dark for 20 minutes so that we know that their rod photoreceptors are at their maximum sensitivity. And then we deliver flashes of light and record those responses. And then they put in the light for 10 minutes. So then we know the rods are saturated and we're recording from the cone system. So because of this, um, it, it's good because it's standardized tests. Uh, and there's something called the International Society for the Clinical Electrophysiology Vision, ISEV, that set these standards before everyone was just doing different things and no one could compare. But the problem is it means that the tests take a long time. So instead of being a five-minute test like an OCT, it might take an hour or more to get uh, proper ERGs done. And I think uh, as well as improving the quality of testing, it has made it less accessible. You might have the best test, but it takes 10 hours to do who's going to do it. And part of my research and my area of activity is, is trying to see if we can shorten those tests. And maybe some things you don't need to put the patient in the dark for 20 minutes. You just want to see some aspect of the, the cone system. Uh, and then you could get that information in, say, five minutes with a portable ERG machine in, in clinic, which is one thing I'm, I'm trialing to see how that can help. That's great. I think a lot of people are glad to hear that you can make the test a little shorter and perhaps a little more pleasant for the, uh, the typical patient. And these tests have evolved quite a bit over the years, haven't they, the ERGs? Yeah, that's right. So one big uh, advance was just setting standards. So over uh, in, in the past, uh, people were doing all sorts of have different kind of uh, stimuli and getting different recordings and you couldn't compare. And then ISEV, this body started to set standards that are regularly updated. Um, and, uh, and that's made testing a lot more uniform. One thing that brought that home for me was I was sent to, uh, as a resident to Tanzania. There was a link between Tanzania and St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, and they'd been donated an ERG machine from a Japanese eye department. And I got sent there, right, you know about ERGs, you go set it up. And I did, and uh, I did go there and uh, and I looked at the manual and it was in Japanese, right, from a Japanese eye department. So suddenly I'm there, blown all the way there from London and I can't, I can't read this manual, but the ISEV numbers were all there. And so I could work out what it was doing and it was just delivering an ISEV standard ERG. We got it working and, you know, I felt, well, <laughs> it's good that we've got a universal standard for that. Uh, in that same trip, then we they'd made some discoveries on 
retinal imaging in, in an optic neuropathy that were really interesting. And um, these microcystic changes in the retina that, that had only been described really in multiple sclerosis before. So we helped them get that published uh, in, in quite a high impact journal. Um, and uh, and so it's kind of, uh, and that helped us understand that these microcystic changes are seen in lots of different diseases. So I kind of went there to do ERGs and, and came back with something completely different. But we got the machine working and that's because the ICEF stimuli were there. And then with time, the standards are updated, new things are added. And I think one big, but I have to say, probably hasn't advanced as much as imaging has. And, and again, a big area of my research and others is trying to advance these tests more rather than just delivering a standard stimulus and looking at the amplitude or the timing of the response. There's a lot more we can get from those waveforms. So um, a lot of my uh, time is uh, spent uh, applying mathematical models to, to the waveforms to try and understand what's going on in the photoreceptors in the retina. And we've uh, we've discovered quite a few new things uh, with that approach. When, when I tell people I work in modeling, they, they do look at me a bit funny. And uh, what modeling do you do? I know mathematical modeling of electrophysiology. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you look like the kind of guy who do that, uh, not, not the other kind of modeling. Part of the evolution of tests is we're analyzing things, not just amplitudes and, and peak times, but we're analyzing different uh, things that we can get from uh, from mathematically modeling the waveforms. And we can also, we deliver different tests. So the standard tests are sort of white flashes on a white background. But one thing I and others are looking at is using different colors of stimuli with clever sort of timing intervals between them to try and tease out different responses from different uh, retinal cell populations so that we can really understand what's going on in some of these diseases and and you know hopefully more understanding will open avenues for treatment in the future that's great there's another test that i've been hearing a lot more about lately and it's being used in clinical trials and i think a lot of investigators in our world hope to even use it as an endpoint for a clinical trial, a primary or secondary endpoint. And that's called full field sensitivity or FST. And would you say, first of all, that that is electrophysiological? And can you talk about what that test is? So uh, FST, full field stimulus testing, it's funny, everyone gives it a different definition some people say full field scotopic testing or uh, but i think it was originally when it was described as full field stimulus testing we'd call it a psychophysical test rather than electrophysiological test they're both big words but electrophysiology is when you're directly recording the the electrical signals but psychophysics is when you're asking the patient basically what what do you see do you see this or not and so it's a psychophysical test where the patient tells you by pressing a button basically whether they're detecting a stimulus or not and there's a big history of, of psychophysical testing, but one thing that was a kind of um, advance in terms of FST was it was very simple. It's just a full field stimulus. You're not stimulating just one tiny bit of retina and patient has to concentrate. And uh, this this is kind of, patient still has to concentrate, but um, this is a, a full field stimulus. It's like a flash that the, that's stimulating the whole of the retina. And in different light intensities, you can work out where, what that patient's threshold is. And, and as you say, it was an outcome measure in many of the pivotal trials and showed that patients, say, who'd had Luxterna, they're suddenly their sensitivity was a lot higher, meaning they could detect light uh, at much lower levels than, than before they had the treatment, say. So it's uh, it's in principle a kind of uh, easy test. Um, still, still, it's a bit demanding for the patient, but it has taken off, as you say, because it does seem to show a change in some of these trials where our traditional measure of visual acuity, which is the traditional way we measure visual function, that doesn't necessarily improve with some of these treatments. 
but other things can improve like the sensitivity in the dark and that can make a big difference to a patient's quality of life and you can't always capture that with a visual acuity. I have to say I, I don't do much of that because my main area of research is electrophysiology and then just sort of seeing patients clinically in our clinics um, so uh, I don't do a lot of it but certainly for the trials that are going on it is being used as, as an outcome measure. Right and with FST again the important point you're making is you're not recording anything other than the patients acknowledging that they see the flash. That's right. Yeah. They, and yeah. Do they hit a button? Yeah. Yeah. And and so uh or some other way of saying that yes, I've seen it. Uh, whereas with electrophysiology, the patient kind of doesn't have to do anything or they've got to look straight ahead. Uh, and then everything else is kind of objective. You're just recording the responses that are being generated from the retina or from the visual cortex. And so in that sense, it's more objective, maybe less demanding on the patient, but for good reason, FST developed because sometimes electrophysiology wasn't sensitive at that very low light levels, especially when you're just improving a little bit of the retina, maybe not enough to show a change on the ERG. So again, another area of my research is trying to get some electrophysiology tests that we're really focus on on small areas of retina or you can look at a bit of retina uh, under say fundus imaging say i want to stimulate that bit of retina and see what response comes from it it's challenging because it's a very small response but i think it's something that could be doable right and so you do a lot of different things omar you you're doing research and you see patients right yeah you're still a work like um well you're a medical doctor and you teach as well. What do you what do you teach? So uh, again, I, I teach in sort of different capacities. Sometimes we have medical students, residents, fellows in clinic, and uh, I uh, supervise them or, or uh, t teach them aspects of ophthalmology or inherited retinal disease. I used to teach as part of the MSc course. There's a master's course in ophthalmology at University College London. I've just given that up, but I used to lead the retinal module for several years. Another thing I do, which I think I find really, although it's time consuming, it's really fulfilling, is that we do a, a one and a half hour every week on Monday evenings, UK time on Zoom, where we just discuss retinal cases. And people now, that started off as, we call it Prof Bird teaching, because it started with Alan Bird many, many years ago, 50 years ago. It was, you know, in person, and it was in person right until COVID, and then we took it online. And then suddenly realize that now people can attend from all over the world, not just Moorfield. So we have people logging in from North America, from India, from Australia at some crazy time. Uh, and we go through retinal cases. And it's a real, really good teaching um, opportunity and learning. I learn as well as as, as teacher. And uh, I guess that's another bit of teaching that I do every week. That sounds like fun. I, I would like to attend that, even though I'm not. You're very welcome to. Doctor, I think it would be interesting to hear all the all the different cases during your average week or month or whatever. What is your favorite thing to do? What gives you the most satisfaction? So again, I'm going to give a rambling answer. That's not just one thing. So one thing I, I appreciate about my job is it is very varied, as you said, and, and I feel like I never get bored because it's a little bit of everything. So caring for patients in clinic is, is a big thing for me. And, and when you feel you can make a difference for your patients, getting the diagnosis right, that, that's a, a huge thing. It's also frustrating that for many of our patients, there's no treatment, but that kind of stimulates the research side of things. And probably from that, clinically, one thing I get maybe most satisfaction from is, is getting a diagnosis that has may, maybe eluded many others. So 
I often get sent cases or images of the retina or patient histories for opinions from other parts of the UK or other parts of the world. And, and to be honest, most of the time, I can't add anything because they've been seen by really good doctors and there's not much to add. And I guess they feel reassured that I've got nothing else that they've missed. But occasionally I do say, no, it's this and maybe check uh, whatever. And, uh, and, and then I, we get the diagnosis. So that, that is quite satisfying occasionally because it's something that people think it's an IRD and it turns out to be something treatable and, and that's a great thing because you can be vitamin A deficiency or something which we don't see that much of but we do see even in the western world at uh, times and, and that can be uh, treated uh, and, and vision restored so that's one side of things other things I enjoy the research making discoveries like being the person who's discovered something that no one ever knew before and then you can communicate those discoveries and especially if we understand more about these conditions that might then lead to new avenues of treatment. Uh, and then the other thing, as we alluded to, is the teaching. I think um, seeing people develop, people have either supervised as scientists or, or as clinicians, uh, and then they go on to do great things or, or, you know, develop great competence and skill as a clinician or a scientist, then that, that's really satisfying as well. That's great. It's great to hear you express such passion for what you do and you have a lot of curiosity and I think that's really <laughs> important to your role so much for the obvious but what what actually inspired you to go down the electrophysiology route I mean there are a lot of ways you could go not just in ophthalmology but in retina and you chose to study electrophysiology you're right it's like the most obscure thing and um I'm paraphrasing someone else who was into psychophysics. He says that if he ever wanted to get rid of someone who's talking to him at a dinner party, he'd say, I, I work in visual psychophysics. And immediately the guy, I think visual psychophysics is interesting, but it's electrophysiology that really turns people off. I think if I say, yeah, I work in electrophysiology, you immediately see the glazed look and suddenly they've got to go or wash their hair or something. And uh, so it is pretty obscure that that's true. Um, and my route was um, during uh, medical school, I, I found vision really interesting. So I gravitated towards the eye. I thought the way the retina works is just mind blowing. It's like a bit of the brain at the back of the eye and the stuff that happens is, is, is so cool. Uh, and uh, in my third year as a medical student, you could do a, a research project. And I was inspired by a guy called Trevor Lamb. He's a scientist, now retired, uh, who's a world expert in photoreceptors. And he was looking at photoreceptor adaptation and using the ERG. Uh, and so I did a project with him and it was great. And we discovered something new. We even published a paper. And then I went on to do a PhD at the MB PhD program. And we discovered lots more uh, that was new. I met uh, Tony Moore at that time, who was at that time based in Cambridge, later moved to London, then to San Francisco, and, and uh, I found him very inspiring. So that kind of got me into vision and ophthalmology. And then within ophthalmology, because I had this electrophysiology background already, I kind of gravitated towards retina and inherited retinal disease. And at the same time as my clinical training, thinking, well, where could the electrophysiology fit in here? Where could it be useful? And I guess that's the thing I sort of bring to the table is that basic science knowledge of retinal electrophysiology and retinal neuroscience, and then applying it to our patients, uh, rather than just standard clinical tests, thinking about how we can take electrophysiology forward, make it more accessible, make it tell us more than than it's already telling us. That was early on in medical school that got me into electrophysiology. And then I, I kind of, as I went through training, saw there's a, there's a gap there, really. We've got really good imaging, but the electrophysiology takes hours and it's a visit to another hospital often or a, another day. And, and uh, there's got to be something better we can do with these tests to, to understand, you know, retinal function in, in health and disease and hopefully do better things for our patients. 
thanks for telling us about your journey into electrophysiology. And we're glad you chose this road less traveled because we need folks like you who are interested in it because it is a very valuable resource for evaluating the retina. So when you're not flashing lights in people's eyes, what do you do for fun? <laughs> who says that isn't fun, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, I, I, I think work takes up a lot of my life, maybe because I find it so kind of fulfilling. But uh, otherwise, uh, time with family, I think, is is a big thing. And, and I do feel when my kids were small, they probably... I inadvertently neglected them quite a bit with all this uh, focus on 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 the clinical training and research and uh, and so time with family I, I really value and I, I try and adjust my schedule so that I can you know spend spend maximum time with them as as they get older. Right. Well, we don't want to take you too far from your family, but we really appreciate your commitment to electrophysiology and caring for patients and, and just trying to get a better handle on inherited retinal diseases so we can move the research forward. Thank you for taking time to tell us more about ERGs. It was fun to go down that path and learn about something that doesn't get talked about very often, at least with patients and families as an audience. So thanks for explaining that world to us. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thanks. And thank you, listeners, as always, for joining Eye on the Cure. It's great to have you, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode. See you later. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.